the Lydalactylus williamsi, the electric blue gecko. We knew that they were critically endangered. All of the scientific research said that they were critically endangered. And, you know, I saw a list come in from Germany just before they were put on CITES, where the chap was offering them in thousands, lots of a thousand. Wow. But there was reportedly only 1,500 in the wild. So population numbers were wrong somewhere. Yes, yeah. But as a trade, we knew that they were critically endangered and they were critically endangered because of habitat destruction, not because of collection by the pet trade. But CITES had never considered the species. There was no quota because they didn't agree that it was endangered until the trade came forward and said, you know what, this this animal needs some help. And, And it immediately got Appendix 1 listing. I think we just need a watchful eye. Are there species that we know that there's a problem in the wild, whether it's through collection for the pet trade or habitat destruction, climate change? If there's an official conservation project, let's support that. If there's an invisible arc, let's support that. If it's just a species that's been missed off of CITES, let's tell them. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. It is somehow that time of year again to have John Courtney Smith, who is the head of science and innovation of Arcadia Reptile, back on the podcast. For those of you who are longtime listeners, we know we've had John on for the past four summers, although this is going to be technically fall by the time it comes out, but we've had John on for four summers consecutively, and I don't know why we would stop next summer. I'm sure we already have planned another episode, so we will continue to do this, and it's always one of everybody's favorite conversations because John is so passionate and interesting to listen to, and in this episode, we discuss Herbert culture just in general what are some things that John sees that he's enjoy likes and the directions we're headed and some things that we can maybe do better and then we really delve into the research and development behind products you know a lot of us will go to the reptile store we'll buy a bulb or you order order a bulb online and that's sort of the extent of our understanding of how those projects get developed or products get developed. So in this conversation, John walks us through a new mercury vapor bulb that they produced for the North American market. And he talks about how much work, time, and money goes into making sure those products work and function properly. And it's a very interesting episode. And then we also discuss their new tortoise food that they all are producing as well. And John goes into incredible detail about how this how this food is developed and how it's made and how beneficial it is. And also some of the kind of concerning things about the tortoise food that's currently on the on on the on the market that are commonly used and and some of the issues with those and how the arcadia product that will be also be released this fall is going to sort of mend some of those issues it maybe want to buy a tortoise at the end because the act the food that he's developed sounds so good so you will enjoy this podcast of course any podcast with john is always fascinating so enjoy the episode before we jump in make sure you head to animals at home network.com if you're looking for more information on this episode or any other podcast on the network if you'd like to join us on patreon you can do that at patreon.com slash animals at home. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Again, like I said last episode, there are some enclosures behind me that we have set up. I cannot wait to actually show you guys what we're doing in this room and kind of creating this set, decking it out completely with Custom Reptile Habitats enclosures. And it's going to look awesome. And that will be my fall project. And that leads me into the last announcement, which is I'm going to take a small break from podcasting through the month of September. 
this will be the final episode until later, either late September or early October. So there might be a four week, a three or four week gap until the next episode. And I know that probably hurts, but between the other podcasts on the network, you will constantly have new podcasts to listen to. So you just will have a little break from the Animals at Home podcast. But during that time, I'm going to be setting up these enclosures and I'm also going to be hopefully putting out videos about these enclosures. So you won't be absent of content from me, but you will have a little bit of absent from content uh, from the podcast. And I've already recorded episodes into October, which are amazing as well. So you will want to make sure you are still tuned in and subscribed so you don't miss those. But having said all that, let's jump into the annual episode with John Courtney Smith. Enjoy. All right. Well, John, welcome back to the podcast number four. Somehow it's been four years in a row we've done this. It's amazing. Yeah, it's great to be here again. I really look forward to our summer meeting. Me too. The whole year's gone past and everything's changed, new things, old things. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, there's always it's it's amazing how much changes within our hobby on a year to year basis, and there's always so much to talk about. And you're always a fascinating person to listen to. So you're clearly one of the most highly requested people. And I know people are actually starting to recognize that we do one every summer because I've had a few messages. When is, when's John coming on for the summer? So uh, people will be happy to hear this. Before we get into anything super complex, I, I wanted to start with the conversation that we actually ended on privately at the last episode, and that was the the blue tree monitor that uh, came into your collection within the last year. I think. It was maybe right after our last episode, and you've been working yeah. with that animal for maybe a year or so. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? I know it came in rough shape. Maybe you could start with yeah, kind so of how it, it came like, and, and the rehab. It arrived through the RSPCA in the UK. It was a, a seized animal in real horrendous condition. It had been kept and treated by vets before we had it, um, but it had incredible scarring across the body. I can't work out whether it had been kept too wet and allowed to fester, whether it had received burns or whether someone had tried to save a few quid, got confused and put a UVC lamp over it, which we have seen before. But the, but the, the scarring had pretty much removed all of the blue on the body. Um, very deep scarring. It was in a, it was in a pretty bad shape. Um, we had, it took us a while to get it feeding consistently. Um, and then it stopped feeding and, uh, which was a bit of a concern at the time, but actually we had full vet records from the animal radiograms and blood testing that we could compare year on year. And we took the animal back to a local specialist exotics vet, and we had another set of x-rays done and blood testing done and actually it's calcium serum levels had shot up and we, we'd been obviously while it was feeding we'd been treating it or supplementing it with with revitalized our mineral and vitamin powder and and magnesium and uh the bone density had increased massively you know there was if you compare the two x-rays it was massive differences blood serum levels were were really very high. Then the animal started to lay eggs. Wow. So that confirmed that it was a female. And the eggs were in pretty bad shape, to be honest. Um, and, and after we got over that blip, she started feeding consistently large amounts. And so we've, we've basically been treating the animal alongside vet guidance where needed. We've been exposing it to heat from a, a coupling of 
75 watt flood halogen and a 50 watt heat projector. Um, we use it. We're providing a UV index of about four at the basking, at the top, at the top perch, at the basking area, and very powerful setup of LED to brighten it up and live plant the thing. Lots of enrichment, change the diet around. And she has really filled out this season. I have no worries about it at all. In actual fact, the skin, the outer layers of skin are repairing rapidly now. And there's really good blue coloration coming back. You know, massive visible differences. And we've, we've obviously photographed and filmed the animal and shared mm-hmm. some of those photographs and films along the way. Um, and she's coming up for that See, if she does it the same as last year she's coming up soon for that season where she may lay again and of course that will be the real proof so she's she's going to be back off to the vet we're going to have another set of x-rays and blood testing done just to see where she is um, compared to last year and we're pretty confident it will we'll see higher concentrations again um, and then look at the quality of the eggs this year. Mm. If the if the calcification of the eggs is better than last year, and the skin's starting to heal, we know that we've really turned a corner with that animal, and we could contemplate maybe, depending on the vet analysis, maybe we will pair it. Mm. Yeah, that's it's an incredible amazing. animal, incredibly intelligent really needs a lot of enrichment climbing. Yeah, what has it been like working? Because you work with birds as well. Is there a lot of similarities? Yeah, very much. It's like having a parrot. Mm. Yeah, Amazing. I mean, they, they really are very similar. They think, um, you know, you, you can play games, scent trailing, um, have it climbing, have it out. We, we actually did a fair bit of work with some of our, with, with Omnigold and Insectigold, the prepared foods that we make, using it for scent trailing around the, the viv, particularly the, the insect-based one, and then watching the animal follow scent trails through the enclosure until it would find a food parcel. And uh, th- that, that was quite illuminating for me. I thought that, that was really very uh, – it was good for the animal and it was good for me to see that it was actually picking up on scents and following it in a line as we'd drawn it around the – uh, around the enclosure so really happy to have the animal really privileged to have the animal um and it's it's been been quite an experience seeing something that looks so ragged that that had, had so much I, I i just can't comprehend the life that it must have had before before it came here it, re- it really that it really was just scar tissue and blister yeah, well, I remember this time last year you were really worried about her and whether or not, like, thinking that she might not survive. And so, when you brought her in to the collection, did you do a pretty heavy quarantine setup? Because obviously, you have a, a very sick animal and you have other animals that are in the same area. What did you guys do to? Yeah, so kind of... It was the only animal in the room at that time. Okay. So, luckily, we were rebuilt and we have rebuilt our whole collection root and branch, everything brand new. So that meant the animals that I already had were in a different building and the animal room now um, just had empty enclosures and this one set up for that animal. And so, yes, it had the place to its own for a good month or so. Mm. Um, And we just checked it, 
observed it, sought the vet's advice, and it, it actually had a clean bill of health from a vet before it arrived here. We knew that it, it wasn't carrying anything contagious, but it was it was burnt and and calcium deficient seriously. So um, we. Yes, it had a quarantine, but I wasn't necessarily, in this case, I wasn't necessarily worried about any pathogens that could pass on. Mm. I, I felt quite early on that it was a, it was physical damage rather than, uh, uh, by, you know, caused by a, a third party. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it just goes to show how resilient these animals are. And when you do put them in a setup that gives them the proper energy and nutrition, how quickly they can actually rebound from basically death. Yeah, yeah, you're you're quite right, and uh, so we'll continue to study it. I, all I can say is I'm uh, I just feel so privileged to be able to work with it, um, and and try and give it a, a decent home. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job. So we'll continue. If anyone's looking for updates with that, you guys do post on the Arcadia Instagram page once in a while. So why don't we jump into just looking at the hobby over as a whole over the last year or so? And what are some things that jump out to you that have, of some maybe some positive changes that you've noticed over the past you know twelve eighteen months? The, the, obviously, I I suffer with being very hyper focused. I, I, I'm very blinkered and, and, and that's just a, a quirk of my brain. But I've noticed that the thing that's made me most happy is this, what appears to me to be a wholesale move towards naturalism in keeping. Mm-hmm. I feel so passionate about replication of wild habitats. You know, our whole animal room out here, we've tried to take to an extreme. Every cage is decorated from a reference photograph and then planted with species of plant that are either originate from that area or that continent. So we try and keep it as naturalistic as possible um, and, and seeing how animals respond to, to native planting and, and decorative style and seeing that really roll out into the hobby, you know, the serious numbers of, of ball python keepers now keeping in very large enclosures with, climbing animals and hides and live plants. And I, you know, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of our hobby, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, this point that there must've been in the last year or so, whereas a collective group of keepers, a significant number of people said, that's it, no more. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this properly or not at all. So I think, you know, okay, product comes, product goes, tech changes, and but in, I, I'm always more interested in theology, the, the the ethics of the brand, what people think, and how they act on that. Mm-hmm. And so, so that that's the thing that's really impressed me, just to see numbers of people speaking out and saying. Do you know what? I've put my leopard gecko in a four by three by two and it uses every inch of the space and it comes out and it sits under the heat lamp and under the UV lamp. And, you know, the flipping thing started biting me. Well, they will. <laughs> you know, they've got the energy to do so now. Yeah, yeah. And I just love that. I think that's that's reptile keeping as it should be. And I'm seeing a lot of 
sort of what you're saying, pride in people keeping in a more naturalistic way, providing more space, adding more enrichment, especially on Instagram. You see a lot of keepers who are, are relatively new and inexperienced and novice keepers setting up with a great setup and, and then just being proud of what they've created. And I think that's what we want people to be focusing on is how exciting it can be to create something natural and, and to give the animal opportunities and then you get to watch the animal and it's this positive feedback loop that we talk about on the channel all the time and it seems to be really catching a lot of momentum right now yeah yeah and, and isn't it great mm. isn't it great because once we move as we as we move into this sort of new era of naturalistic keeping um we will start to develop even more pride and more skills and more ability and product will change so that it provides for animals in these type of enclosures. And to me, that's just really exciting. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. You know, last time we spoke, we spoke about the difference between bioactive and naturalism and how, you know, I said how naturalism trumps or good naturalism trumps bad bio every time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the sea change that we're seeing. We're seeing people starting to realise that, you know, poor decoration with a few springtails in the bottom of a, a natural substrate doesn't actually provide better care. What provides better care is decoration and an orientation and a style that an animal's evolved to utilise and, and when you start seeing weight of numbers of people doing that and sharing their experience, that's when, you, you know, you get a snowball effect. More and more people start to realise it. So more and more people become vocal and um, really, really good enclosures. I have a question about that. This is maybe might take us on a, a short tangent, but I think I had sent you a message on Facebook maybe a few months ago because somebody had asked me this and they said that when you create a... Uh, the, the drainage layer, you're not using a divider or a screen to separate the drainage layer from the substrate. I think that was the question. And you, you said you don't use a screen, right, to allow the roots to get in to the drainage layer, or are you not using a drainage layer at all? You you must use a drainage layer. Right, okay. It, I don't care what substrate you have, who made it, what it's for. A drainage layer um, works in multiple ways, and it's really important. Firstly, it will help increase oxygen um, and gaseous exchange around the bottom and into the soil. You know, it's, when you're looking at the makeup of soil, it's mostly weathered rock, so mineral. Then it's gases and liquids. Then it's organic matter. Okay, that's that's what soil is made up with. And one of the restrictive parts of plant growth is that there's when you, when you put plants in soil, if the soil's too compacted, you, there's a lack of gaseous exchange. There's a lack of oxygen in the soil. So having a, uh, an empty reservoir at the bottom will simply help aerate the soil. It's also a fantastic insurance policy from overwatering right. and soil saturation and stagnation. You know, it's really very easy to overwater your vivarium and if you do and leave it it will stagnate and your cultures will die off you'll get a horrible smell the plants start to drown um, so a drainage layer is really very important in terms of using a divider between the two layers i choose not to now there's no right or wrong answer okay if you place your substrate directly on top of your drainage layer 
eventually your substrate will start to fall into the drainage layer. Now, for me, what I try and do is keep a mist almost, a, a, a condensation within the drainage layer. And this means that the roots of the plant can come down into the drainage layer and it, they will be able to pick up moisture and all the minerals that are washed through. Because you every time you water your soil, particulates are going to go downwards mm. and, and end up in the drainage layer. And you end up with, an, it's hydroponics basically, it's a nutrient-rich soup. And for me, I didn't want plant roots inhibited being able to get into the drainage layer where I wanted them to be able to pick up food very easily. Mm. I don't have a problem with, pe with people using a separating layer, but I really am not keen on things like fleece, um, fly mesh, anything where the weave is too fine. Then, you know, roots have got to push through those to get downwards. So a wide weave mesh between the drainage and the soil, you know, that's absolutely fine. I, I choose not to, but half of the reason I do that is that we keep, an, we keep animals in a certain way for a set period of time, and then we break it all down and start again anyway. Nothing's massively long-term. Right. So you're less worried about the, the layer getting compacted with the soil from on top, yeah. basically. I'd rather just have the plants have free access. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Personally. I'm, and and even with, if you do use a screen, it's amazing how those little hair roots get through the screen. With, you know, as long as it's a decently wide cube, uh, like hole through the screens, the plants will find a way down there. But I see what you're saying about completely blocking it off that almost, it almost defeats the purpose of having it. Yeah, it, uh, it in my mind it does. And, you know, eventually, even through a fleece, roots will bury through eventually. But... It, they're going to be impeded in the process and you might only still get those very fine whispery hair roots mm. rather than a big tap root that, that we really, we really want. Mm. So I choose not to, if you choose to, that's fine. But my counsel would be use a wide mesh. Okay. Um, uh, that's a, that's a great tip. So, so we were talking about some of the positive changes. Uh, are there some negative changes that you've seen happen in the past year or so that you know the ship is steering in the wrong direction in, in some areas or is everything good? Everything's not perfect. Um, you know, we're still seeing issues with some forms of lighting appearing on the market as an unregulated industry. We, I'm starting to find more and more problems with some historic products um, where, where when you take it back to bare roots, you think, goodness, this just can't work. Why hasn't anybody realised this before? I think the hobby's going in the right direction. You know, if we can really keep battering the door of naturalistic keeping and hopefully finally see an end of rat keeping, um, I think we're going in the right direction. Um, you know, there's been a few howlers of products released, but I, honestly, I don't believe they will last long enough to make any real negative impact on the hobby. Mm -hmm. um, for the first time, I think I actually feel quite relaxed about how the hobby's doing. You know, there's always, we can always do better. One of the biggest risks of the hobby that I see is... Um, Sadly, still this prevalence of grey area grey area imports. Right. You know, species that we know are either endangered but not on CITES, but we still continue to utilise them, or we 
unscrupulous traders find workarounds on CITES to get them in. And I, I really worry that the desire for keepers to work with historic species that haven't been available for a while or new species that nobody knows anything about will actually cause detriment to our hobby long term. I think, you know, if we're heading in the right direction in terms of naturalism, we need to polish our armour and show that we're quite an ethical business, you know. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of species that really worry me. And I think if that's exposed, that, that there is now trade in them again where there shouldn't be, um, it's going to leave the whole hobby open to accusations, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, ethical keeping goes beyond just what you do in your viv. It goes to the acquisition of these animals as well and how they're bred and how, how we're getting them from the wild. And, and it's the easiest thing for an animal rights group to poke at. And, and there's, no, there's no defense on our part, really. You know, if we're smuggling things in and, and taking things out of the wild, poaching things out of the wild, there's almost no f- moral ground to stand on to say, no, we can do this. You know, there are ethical ways to do that that are proper and then we could stand on some moral ground but just to rip it out of the rainforest and ship it in a box and have someone's pet it's it's we can't argue that no no you know i'm not i've been very vocal i'm not anti-wild court for species where there is legal trade Mm -hmm. and they could be used to make new banks uh, the invisible arc um you know i'm a real supporter of conservation that way i mean we wouldn't have any crested geckos if it didn't work you know there's 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 lots of species that have been really helped by ex situ conservation what i'm really bothered about is species that have either zero quota and are being relisted in a different way so that CITES doesn't pick it up and which and, and shipments get in or species that CITES don't know anything about, but we know there's... I'll give you a quick history. The Lydelactylus williamsi, the electric blue gecko, uh, we knew that they were critically endangered. All of the scientific research said that they were criti- critically endangered. And, you know, I, I saw a, a list come in from Germany just before they were put on CITES where the chat was offering them in thousands, lots of a thousand. Wow. But there was reportedly only 1,500 in the wild. So, so, so population numbers were wrong somewhere. Yes, yeah. But as a trade, we knew that they were critically endangered, and they were critically endangered because of habitat destruction, not because of collection by the pet trade. Um, predominantly, it was habitat destruction and planting of palm oil and things like this. But CITES had never considered the species. There was no quota because they didn't agree that it was endangered until the trade came forward and said, you know what, this this animal needs some help. And and it immediately got Appendix 1 listing and zero quota, of course. So um, I think we just need a watchful eye. Are there species that we know that there's a problem in the wild, whether it's through collection for the pet trade or habitat destruction, climate change. If there's an official conservation project, let's support that. If there's an invisible arc, let's support that. If it's just a species that's been missed off of CITES, let's tell them. Yes. Yeah, we don't want to take advantage of the loopholes. Yeah. 
yeah, taking advantage of the loopholes doesn't make us look good. It just makes us look like we're being sneaky and it's better to, to just put that out in the open because we should actually care about what's happening in the wild and we do want to protect the animals. I mean, that's what we all say. So we should actually act that out as well. And uh, so are, are there areas in the hobby right now that you, that you see that you want to have more development in? Like, obviously we talk about lighting all the time. Lighting, I think is going to continue to grow. Are there other areas that you think, okay, there's, there's some room for improvement here or that you're excited about the development in the future? Definitely caging. Mm. I think, you know, I mean, there's some pretty good caging at the moment, but I think it needs some more thought, you know, unless you're able and willing to build things at home, um, you're limited to what you can buy in shops and online. Um, I really, I really like Dale Tamura's outlook on cage building where he'll build anything for anybody at any any uh, size or orientation. I'm still not convinced that doing it in plastic is the right thing to do, but I wait to be disproven on that. But that's a, a bit of an ick for me. Um, but I think a lot more work needs to be done in in, in cage availability. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing about having this sort of movement of more people keeping in this larger, more naturalistic way, we become a market for those products because without the market, then these products just don't develop. So that's the other reason that it's exciting to have all these people realizing that we want to keep in better conditions, keep in better, you know, larger enclosures is suddenly the companies and obviously you you work for a, a reptile brand. So you're well aware of this. It's easier to sell to people when they actually want the items. If they still want to keep in a little Tupperware thing, good luck selling an $800 enclosure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the trick is, is, is getting, is that, that sort of magic point on the bridge of life where, where you stop having to persuade somebody that they need something, but they realize that actually my animal and my keeping experience will be better if we did it this way. Yeah. Um, I'm quite interested as at the point that we're recording this video, I'm quite interested to see where, um, Bill Strand's Chameleon Academy series on caging goes because I know he's in the next few weeks he's going to be covering different cage types and sizing and, and everything for chameleon so I'm, I'm quite interested to see what conclusions Bill comes up with. Yeah Bill has some I, I won't say too much but I know that he has got some really interesting things uh, planned so he's he's developing some interesting things so I'm very excited I haven't seen anything yet but I know he's um, you know, building some stuff or in his head, he's got some cool ideas. So I'll be very excited to see that too. And as far as we're talking about new developments, is is there some new tech advancements that within the last year or so that you've seen that, that have been pretty impressive? I know you guys did release the Thermal Zoo Pro at some point within, the, I think that was within the last year. I don't think that was out or no, what was it, it out last time we talked? It was, it, it arrived just before Christmas 2021. Okay. So it wasn't out yet. That's right. Yeah, so you know, kind of in the financial year period. Yeah, so we, we we put a heck of a lot of work into that. I'd had a chance meeting with Frances Baines where she showed me a prototype that some um, industrious zookeepers have been retrofitting commercial hydroponics units um, so that they had heat lamps in them. It, when I saw the unit, you know, when you get that shock, oh my goodness, you could never sell this. It, it, it would never pass any certification. Please, <laughs> please don't advise anybody. There's a real electrocution <laughs> here. But, but, but the idea was very good. So we took that idea back and started to 
draw, and it, and it took well over two years to draw up uh, uh, a fitting that, that incorporated lighting, T5 lighting, LED lighting, and two heat sources, all within a, a compact, um, aesthetically pleasing fitting that could be used in zoological enclosures or big at-home enclosures. And uh, actually, it's always the smallest things that are, are hardest to fix when you get into these projects. So you look at really nice aesthetic curves and you all these different parts in R&D. And actually, we, what I found very quickly was that I wanted all the light to merge in a central space below the unit. And to do that, we had to bring angles in. So you'll notice the top of the unit comes down like this and with the lighting on the sides. And that, that was very specific. We, we wanted to use lighting that was future-proof where you wouldn't have to throw away the whole fitting if something went wrong. You can very easily swap out. If you buy one that's got two T5s in it, you can very easily unclick one T5 and click an LED in it or vice versa, you know. Um, and for anything that we do in the future, it will be future-proof. But we, we, I really wanted the light to have a, a solid projection value below the unit, um, which is what we, we managed to do after a lot of jiggery-pokery. Every unit's handmade. They can't be machine-made. It's, it's quite a, a complex thing for something that's so simple. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really proud of that. And it's been very well accepted. Well, it's kind um, of a we, nice just all-in-one system right if someone is even if someone's like I, I just don't feel like learning about how all this lighting aspects works you just have this box that does it all for you yeah and it comes with the lamps and everything you know we put the lamps in for free i don't know what the canadian price is but they start full retail price before any discounts i wanted to make it available for everybody as many people as possible and you know uk retail price start 189 pounds mm -hmm. including all the glassware so we really tried to make something that was a bit different, that was future-proof, that had good recyclable values to it, that was aesthetically pleasing, that you could tinker with yourself in terms of lamp selection, um, but but was quite affordable. And so, so I guess for anybody that's listening, and it, uh, maybe I should have started with this, that isn't aware of, of the product, maybe you could just quickly run through exactly what it is. It, it's a box that obviously has the different types of lighting in it, but maybe you could just give us a quick, you know, 10 second overview. Yeah, so, so there's a, an a painted black aluminium housing, um, which holds, you, you can choose, it's either pre-fitted with either two Pro T5, high output T5 light bars, or one Pro T5 and one Jungle Dawn LED bar um, on the, the, the outer side of the luminaire. And then there's two deep dome clamp lamps fitted in the center. So you, you, you've got two independently controlled heat sources um, and a hanging kit so you can, you can hang the product over or inside of an enclosure, um, switches on all the cables and, and you, there's a, a link hole as well. So you can remove a little rubber bung and you can link up to three units to, or you can link the lighting for up to three units together from one power source. Mm. So, you know, if you've got Crocs or something, you can make a, a nice big luminaire. The heat lamps are individually switched and individually plugged. So thermostat use, no problem at all. Um, and it's black, it looks smart. Yeah, yeah, it is a really nice looking unit. And I have a question about, um, 
the deep heat projectors because I know that there's some people in the advancing lighting community that push back on these. And I, so I wanted to know what your sort of your thoughts on this. I, I know that the criticism of them is that they are a carbon filament, so they produce mainly infrared B. And I think that the the moral of the story is the sun doesn't produce as much infrared B and really IRA or infrared A is the most important. Is is your opinion just we don't know, so we should be providing as much of both as possible? Or, or where do you sit on that? When I, I, the heat projector, when I started, the, the R&D project was seven years on the heat projector. Wow. Trying to fit existing tech that failed constantly um, until we got to the design that we made. And I learned a lot about infrared and I learned a lot about bioavailability and this, that and the other. Very clearly, when we, when we released the product, and it was only available in 50 watts at the time, when, when we released the product, it had two very defined uses. And I think those defined uses got a little confused over time um, in the keeper sphere. The first use was I wanted the product to increase welfare. Now, at the time, bearing in mind this is five years ago, nearly since we released it, and I'd been working on it for seven years before that, of course, there was still a massive amount of people, most people keeping leopard geckos, crested geckos, were using heat mats or um, ceramic heaters, which are just infrared sea. And, and as we know, they, they just warm air. And they're, they're the heat mats, cables, heat radiant heat panels, ceramic heaters are the worst choice in terms of being bioavailable. And what I wanted was a product for people that chose to use a lightless source, whether they had light sensitive animals or they preferred to use a lightless source, they could move to a heat projector and it would increase welfare because infrared B is more bioavailable. It, it pushes into the body further than infrared C. Mm -hmm. And so, so that was the first prime use. I then started in, in, in the R&D section of, of that history, which you can actually see is in my, in book four, in, in fire. Mm -hmm. I give the whole history of the heat projector. I started using it as a prime basking lamp, but alongside multiple T5s and LED bars. And what I saw on species that when we included the heat projector was that we, on every single species we tried it over a number of years, we saw an improvement in coloration, a improvement in body score, uh, increase in aggression and feeding aggression and reproduction. So for sure, that energy was impacting those animals to a level that I hadn't seen before. It worked. Mm. Um, but we do know that the sun provides more UV uh, infrared A and that that pushes into the dermis even further. But the second primary use when we released it, one was for people that chose to use lightless sources to increase uh, bioavailability and to save them some money on running costs because a 50-watt heat projector will do a better job than a 100-watt ceramic. Right. So it lowered their running costs. The secondary job was to use it in a pairing, like I mentioned just earlier with the tree monitor, where you'd use, I, I'm really a fan of halogen flood lamps. 
And so, so I will use a halogen flood lamp. They're very bright. They've got a high color rendition. They're very quickly warming and they're infrared A rich. There's a lot of infrared A in there, but hardly any infrared B. So what I then do is, is I buddy up the two lamps side by side. So I've got a central basking area and I've got the halogen providing lots of visible light. It's quickly warming, attractive to basking, loads of infrared A, and I use the heat projector to make up for the infrared B. And that's where we see the biggest positive change in animals. In actual fact, um, with veterinary treatment cases here and with specialist vets, we have something known as heat projector therapy, where if you've got a very, very sick animal where it just needs some seclusion, you can use a heat projector on that animal and they do seem to recover much faster than, than any other type of lighting. So, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm happy for people to use the lamp in whatever way they see fit. For me, the best use possible is to use it alongside another heat lamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That way you're getting that coupled effect. And, and then, like you said, the, the halogen or tungsten filaments aren't providing as much infrared B. And it's, you know, the lighting and the energy that we get from the sun is just so mysterious. I think the only thing we can do is try to replicate it as best as possible and then just assume that that will be beneficial. You know, the body will be absorbing these energies. We don't know exactly what it's doing a lot of the time. But, you know, if you're seeing actual tangible improvements, then there must be some benefit, provided that you're providing shade. That's always the thing, the criticism. Oh, you know, you have all this lighting, but where's the animal going to get away from the lighting? (laughs) Well, Yes, shade. You know, we don't have lights all over the enclosure. There's, you have to have that element of, of getting away from the light as well. Exactly. Self-regulation is vital. I'm, I'm, one point I will make as well is that we learned very recently by using a very expensive, very specialized spectrometer. You know, we, we had assumed that the spectrum of a halogen lamp and a tungsten lamp would be exactly the same because they both use tungsten as the as a heating element, but actually I can see up to 1640 nanometers now. And we can see that there is a difference in the spectrum between the two different lamps. Um, you know, and I've submitted that to the reptile lighting guys um, so they can make of it what they will. The spectrum that's given out for the heat projector is worked out on theory. There isn't a spectrometer that can read those wavelengths easily um so i'm i'm not convinced that the spectrum that's being shown on some forums is actually accurate Mm. because it's worked out by paper and guesstimate of what it should look like as a black body radiator gotcha not actually read by a sensor so until we can find a sensor that can read all the way up into the mid-range of of infrared as a classification we, we, we don't really know for sure what it does. Mm. Well, and it's interesting that there's such a difference between just a tungsten bulb and a halogen bulb considering they do use the same filament. But I guess it is the halogen gas in the bulb that changes the temperature or changes the spectrum in some way. Yeah, it's, it's not a massive difference, but there is a marked difference between the, the spectrum of the two lamps. Interesting. In infrared, not in the visible part. Right, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, we're talking about products. Let's let's discuss 
how products get developed. You're talking about the DP projector, you know, having a seven year development phase. So how how do you guys even tackle creating a new project or a product? Do you, are you finding a hole in the market where you think, okay, this is something that we could use to improve the life of the animal and then start there and then figure out what that product would be or, or how, how does the process work? We, we, as, as a brand and, and with me leading this brand, we always start with animal welfare first. Okay. Is there a, is there a, a product that's not working Effectively, or is there a complete hole in the market or is there something that somebody's not thought about? And, and the way to find that out is to both look at animal behavior. Um, in terms of lighting, we look at the spectrum of the sun as the perfect provider and then start to look as in detailed as we can with the technology that exists around us and, see, and then see if there's anything that matches or how you can better something. Um, and generally, that's when you start uncovering the many issues that surround the reason why that product doesn't exist in the first place. Right. And, and, and you know, technology always has limitations. Um, and and for, for many reasons, physics being one of the main, you know, you can't expect X product to do Y if it's been designed to do X. Right. It's never, ever going to do why, you know, and uh, try, trying to force a product to do what you want it to do in a way that it's not been designed to do is is a fool's game, really. So, so we always start with what do animals need? What can we do to make things better? Um, and how can we do that at an affordable price? Right. Which is which is important for for us all as keepers, we need to be able to afford to keep our animals. Um, and then it's time, huge amounts of time. You know, the heat projector was seven years start to finish. And yeah, I'll be working on 50 or 60 other projects at the same time. And <laughs> yeah. in and out and in and out. Um, we've got, there's actually a lamp I've been working on at the moment, which has been just nearly a five year project, which I'll, give you a bit of an exclusive rundown of how and why we've developed it. Um, just so that you guys can understand how complex you know, creating a new lamp or adjusting a lamp can be before it enters the market. And sadly, this is why we see substandard product on the market. If you, if a brand or an importer doesn't understand reptilian biology and the characteristics of light, you can very easily source and buy lamps in China or other places in the world, put them in a reptile box and sell them and find that they're completely unsuitable. Case in point, those horrible little halogen lamps with the protective lens removed from the front. I get that the factory that makes them email me every single week trying to tell me that they've got an affordable UVB lamp. They haven't. They've got a dangerous lamp with some UVB and some UVC and they're unusable right because they don't understand they're just looking for that word uvb without and without realizing that uvb is a whole set of wavelengths that are only really made safe and effective when you plug it into uva as well the, the subject of our previous talk um so there's many dangers you you really do need to understand the the, the why and how before you can do something and it typically takes us 
between two and five years to bring something that, that we're happy with. Right. And and, and this story, <clears throat> we we've we've been really privileged in the in the since our last talk to see our business in the United States and Canada grow and interest in our business grow um, considerably. Um, you know, we have two incredible importers in the USA. We've got a really good importer in, in Canada. And now you can, you might have noticed you can buy some of our product in PetSmart as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was happy to see that. Yeah. So we, we, we've been doing our best to try and make availability better. But one of the questions I was asked really early on in that whole process, and that that particular deal took a couple of years, was that there still was and is a need for a, a combi lamp in the USA that has that, that doesn't have a whole host of um, technology issues, a self-ballasted mercury vapor. And we make a self-ballasted mercury vapor lamp called the D3 Baskin lamp for in 240 volt. For, for the UK and the EU area. And actually mercury vapor lamps are, even though there's frustrations because you can't thermostatically control them, but they are actually, if you use them correctly, they're, they're a pretty good light source. They are infrared A rich. They pump hot, they're quite bright, they've got a high color rendition. And in theory, they should have a very stable UVA to UVB ratio. Um, and certainly we see quality tolerances in the 240 volt market much, much smaller than has been reported in the USA. And we've all seen that clip where the uh, online where the chap would taken one brand of mercury vapor out of a box, let it run, and he was he was getting a UV index of two at something like 15 inches. Then he took from exactly the same outer, took another lamp out, and it was over 50. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. these massive tolerances between the lamps. And even historically, I understand some US brands, they've had to get shipments of, of lamps in and then hand sort them into low, medium, and high outputs because they are handmade. They are very fickle. They're complex to make. You're, you're vaporizing mercury to create UV in, 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 a, in a specific way. And, um, so we were asked whether we could work on a 110 volt, 110, 120 volt version of the mercury vapor lamp. And so I, I put put the project off for a bit, just why I thought about it, because we needed to know what, why are these massive quality and output tolerances uh, worse in the USA and Canada than they are in the in, in the UK and Europe. Right. So we, we budded up with our friends in Germany. You know, these guys have access to some of the most complex machinery in, in the world and took mercury vapor lamps back to the very core physics. Now, keep in mind, mercury vapor was designed in the mid-1930s as a human tanning lamp. 300 watt lamp. Can you imagine what it'd be like to sit under that? <laughs> and uh, wow. what we've done is try and convert what was a, a, a sun tanning lamp into something that's usable for reptiles and then try and uh, improve on that over time. Over 10 years ago, I added a, in, for the 
240 volt version, I added a phosphor coating to the lens so that you'd get a better coloration, a better spread of light, um, no sort of dead spots anywhere. Um, and I was quite proud of that at the time. We soon discovered, you know, testing and testing hundreds. Some uh, One of the test rooms had 200 mercury vapor lamps being tested by the German team to see where these quality issues were coming from. Wow. And the, the resulting conversation that came off of that was that we, we decided or found out that actually all of the lamps that we could find that were running on 110 to 120 volt had been converted from 240 volt. Okay, so we've taken a 240 volt model and tried to convert it to 110 volt, which you can do with a filament lamp. You can't do that with mercury vapor because the ignition system is then completely in the wrong place. You need a, you need a different set of igniters and heaters. You need the arc tube, so the tube that contains the mercury and, and gases in a completely different, <clears throat> at a completely different angle. You need to redesign a lamp from the ground up. And so that's what we eventually did with our German partners, was take mercury vapor lamp design back to the 1930s, where it all started, and then create a mercury vapor lamp that is designed to run on 110 to 120 volt, but hadn't been converted from 240 in the first place. Right. And, you know, this is took over five years to get to the point that we're at now, or very close to five years. And the, the level of testing, you know, we think we've, we think we've cracked it, make a load of lamps, test them, bin them, make a load of lamps, test them, bin them, find out what you've done right and find out what's going wrong. And we really did. We had to sit down as physicists looking at the way the ignition system heats the lamp and how what happens then to that mercury vapor and how light is produced um, from the lamp. It was a complete redesign. There was no me too provision. There was no, well, let's try this and we'll see what happens. It was root and branch, scientific drawing, start to finish. Um, and we've eventually cracked it we found the perfect angle for the arc tube. We found the perfect configuration for the um, ignition system of the lamp. Some people will call it a heating system. In the UK, we tend to call it igniters. We call them igniters. So I right. call it an ignition system, even though there's, you're not actually igniting anything. You're superheating mercury until it vaporizes. Um, and, and what we found over a long period of time, so then we go into testing again, live testing in, in labs, that we could, the, the production values were suddenly back down to the ideal 11% tolerances that we have in the 240 market in terms of output. Mm -hmm. You're never ever gonna get two mercury vapor lamps the same. They are handmade everyone will be slightly different and depending what your running voltage is and the, you know, what Hertz is coming through your plug 
it will, will affect the lamps slightly. In my building here, we run a, the UK is supposed to be 240 volt. We run at about 244, 246 all the time. So things that are plugged in here are slightly overprovided. Right. Um, all of these things will affect the output of a lamp. You know, a lamp that's not connected properly in the lamp holder, or if you've got a, a dodgy timer or anything like that will, will affect the eventual output of the lamp. But what we found in, in lab conditions that we were, instead of having this massive output tolerance of either two or 50, that we were down now to the UV index parameters that we show on our boxes and around about, on average, about 11% output swing, which is quite incredible for a mercury vapor lamp. We found that they were much more robust. They don't fail anywhere near as quickly as some poor keepers were suggesting on the reptile lighting forums that, you know, they're buying mercury vapor lamps and they just were pinging after a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So we've had to go root and branch back and redesign a brand new lamp for the, for the, particularly for the USA and Canada that, you know, we, we will be very open in saying that we've created this for that market. We haven't adapted existing tech. We haven't tried to alter existing tech. We've used the necessary function of a mercury vapor lamp and altered it completely towards the running voltage that is is common for for the Americas. So this is basically one of or the only mercury vapor bulb that's actually produced for 110, 120 that, that's not been retrofitted in some way or as far as we know. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I stand corrected. All of the ones that we looked at from the major brands that they that the you, and you can tell because the configuration of the ignition system is in the same position as the 240 volt. Right. So you know that you, if you're using the ignition system and then changing the voltage of the wiring, it's it's just been converted from 240 to 110. It's not been designed for 110. So as far as we know, this is exclusive new technology. It's it's certainly exclusive to our brand. Well, and, and it's something uh, that you don't really think about as a consumer is the the amount of time and money that goes into developing a product. You just you know grab it off the shelf and pay pay your money for it and plug it in. But I can't imagine how much expense there is in actually creating a project. You know, and and hopefully you almost are forced to find an answer because of how much time and money you've spent. I'm sure when you were binning some of those new designs you're thinking okay the next one better work because we need a product to sell at some point at the end of this path there is a little bit of that i'm really lucky that i have a very very supportive parent company and a a managing director that's as passionate to get things right as i am so we understand as a business that there are r&d costs you know there's another project i'm working on at the moment um still working on and we've already spent over $400,000 on R&D. Wow. And that's not including buying any stock. That's just in time, certification, uh, legal testing, um, prototypes, registrations, web creation. Uh, it really does mount up. So, um, 
there, there is a cost and there's a huge cost in time, which obviously has a physical a financial cost. Right. But yeah, these things don't happen overnight. It, well, they shouldn't. There should be no reptile brand out there that says, let's make a UV lamp, make a phone call. We've got one. We'll market that. Yeah. That should never happen. It should always take years. If not, you don't understand your product. Well, and then what about the testing after you have a product that passes maybe like the physics testing, you know, you're getting the right reads and you've brought it into the variants that you're the error variants that you're happy with. And then what about testing it on the animals? Is that something that you have to do as well? I mean, but I'm sure before the product heads to the market, there's got to be some testing that way. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a very defined um, product release process. If it's a, if it's a UV lamp, we start off with a, a formal brief. Now, my briefs are generally up to 20,000 words. That's just explaining what I need a product to do and how we've designed it. We go into initial drawing, sourcing, sorting it all out. We document all that. Um, once we have a, a lamp that we think is okay, it will then go to one of the world's most expensive integrated spheres, we're very lucky to have access to an to an yes i've got a spectrometer here but we also have access to a sphere and a sphere will give you very accurate readings across the spectrum of the lamp so then we'll have at, at hundreds of points as well <laughs> and uh, then we'll be able to assess whether that lamp is doing is performing in the way that handheld meters and handheld spectrometers suggest if that all matches up that will either then be tested independently and you know people know we've worked with Francis for decades now she's never been employed by us but we have um, used her services to double check our math for, mm -hmm. as an expression um, and and then if that comes back as being yes, there's nothing dangerous here, and it's good for this, or you need to tweak that, you know, if it, at any point when we've worked with her over the years and she's come back and said that's not right, I would bin it and start again. Um, so we're then fairly confident that the lamp is working the way that it should do, that there's no safety issues. We would then place the lamp with a series of people, trusted, independent testers and in our own collection we know it's safe we know there's no detriment to the animals it will all be measured out and then it's just longevity testing and and observation wow that is quite a i mean i guess you have to do it you can see why it takes five years yeah exactly yeah i'm sure even that last phase probably takes a whole year you got to go through longevity testing and so the product that the um, mercury vapor that's going to be available for north america when does that is that's not out yet right no, that, that, that will arrive in the US and Canada um, probably early September okay. 2022. And it will be no, it, it, the brand name is D3 Evo. Okay. Uh, obviously, an evolution of our trademark already, which is the D3 Baskin lamp. Um, so, so it'll be called the D3 Evo. And we're writing on the packaging exclusive new technology. We're making it very. Uh, easy for the keepers to understand the technology is full UV index outputs printed on the back. Um, uh, I'm very excited about it. There still is a very good use for mercury vapor if you use them correctly. You know, that's usually alongside T5s. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I know one of the big complaints about mercury vapor was sometimes they have horrible color, right? It's like a, almost like a greeny color. So there's some cheaper bulbs or I don't, I don't know if they're cheaper or they're very yellow and they just don't look natural. And I assume that, how, how does the light look coming off of that product? It, they have a very high color rendering index. So things look quite natural underneath them if they're made properly, mm-hmm. but they still have this sunlight glow, this sort of orangey yellow color. And that's just the nature of the of the lamp. You know, halogens are golden. Exactly, yeah. But it's kind of what makes them look so bright. If you get those green spots, it's because the arc tube's in the wrong place. Mm. Okay, that's good to know. Well, I'm sure people will be excited about that product. Yeah, we really have put a lot of work into it. So I'm quite excited to see how, how it's accepted. Obviously, we, it, our prime market is the UK and Europe and Australia. Of course, we can't sell it. <laughs> can't sell it there yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. It'll be so. interesting to see how the our American friends. It's all up it to up. us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the other side to Arcadia is diets and food and nutrition. You know, obviously, everybody knows Arcadia for lighting and heating, and that that is a big primary part of your business. But then you also have diets and foods and and gut load and whatnot, and so that also has a whole other area of R&D that's associated with it that's probably very different from the lighting, but I'm sure just as extensive. Yeah, it really does, sometimes even more so. And one of the questions I'm asked all the time is, you know, Arcadia is a lighting brand and it always has been. Why are you dabbling around in reptile nutrition? Well, the first answer is, is, and, and again, if you read that book, I view the provision of photons, terrestrial photons to animals as being part of the nutrient cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. So the provision of light is nutrition. So therefore we, we, we really must provide them the best kind of ingestible nutrition as well. And I right back all those years ago, when I first started working on what became earth pro, it was simply because I couldn't find a single product on the market that I was happy to use in terms of mineral powders. Um, they so over-egged with D3 and vitamin A and I, it was all sort of mi- mix and match. Nothing was natural. And and so we released Earth Pro under the Wild Recreation banner as all natural. So, you know, there's no synthetics, no colours, no flavours, um, no additives. It's we're not we're not taking a a spoon of sodium and a spoon of phosphorus and a spoon of calcium and a spoon of magnesium and mixing it all up until the, the levels that they suggest are safe for agriculture. No, we use a clay. So we we use a clay as our base. It's mined product and it's full spectrum mineral. And because it's come out the ground, it's naturally balanced anyway. Mm-hmm. Upshoots your bioavailability, and I think that's why the majority of keepers have seen such good responses with the powders and foods that we've made we we've actually been making this will be an exclusive i probably shouldn't be talking about it but we've been working we've been asked for years now whether we should make a tortoise food and we make a aquatic turtle food all natural no additives you know it just is made from fish insects plants we pelletize that it's fantastic but for tortoises we, we didn't have for, for, you know, testudo species, really. There just wasn't anything available, again, that, that I would use. And 
Moreover, there was nothing available to me that I could create to make something that I would use. So we started talking about creating a tortoise food um, in 2017. Wow. And so I've kept the notes, I've kept the project ticking along until the, the ingredients that we would need to make something became available. And late last year, that, that actually happened. So that, that led on to me rewriting the brief, another big, long, boring document all my staff have to read. Um, and we dissected the ingredients list of all of the major manufacturers of tortoise food. Put it all onto a spreadsheet. I wanted to see what they were made of, what the nutrient values were, what the additive values were, and where we could try and do something that was more natural for a Mediterranean species. And what we found out instantly, I can't even say very quickly, it was instantly. When you start looking at the ingredients of commercial tortoise food, and I think we all should, you'll very, very quickly see that they are made from waste. Almond nutshells, sunflower seed husks, the core of sweet corn, maize, um, soya bean husk. And then that's mixed with bran or wheat or the, the outer sheath, the unedible bit of rice. And so you, you get that as your main ingredients when you look at the ingredients list. And then, and then they add in amino acid powder, so there's your protein. They'll add in sunflower oil, there's your oils and fats. Then it will clearly state artificial and natural colors, flavors, and preservatives. And then add in a, a vitamin powder. Some brands might add in some Timothy Hay or a few herb extracts usually. And because these diets are pelletized, what, what you have to do is mill that concoction. So what we found was we, we, we've got products that are made, you know, we, all, we know that tortoises need fiber, okay? And you can get really good fiber from a nutshell. It's all fiber. In actual fact, you might as well use coir. It was the same. Right. But because you then need to pelletize it, you have to mill it. You have to grind it. So you're grinding all of these insoluble fibers and additives into uh, a flour. That flour is then heated, steamed, colored, scented, and pushed through an extruder to make a pellet. And when you look at the when you look at the nutrient values of some of these pellets, you might have 23, 25% fiber, 10%, 9% protein. And uh, you know, that that would tick all the boxes in terms of what a tort, what's best for a Mediterranean tortoise. But actually what, what we're not doing is providing any food. What we're doing is providing insoluble fiber of a microscopic particulate. Don't forget, and particle size is important. We'll come back to that. So we've milled this fiber into a flour, and then we've added in a, an, a protein complex to give the protein because there's no protein in fibers. We've added in some plant attractants by adding in some essences, if you're lucky, a vitamin and mineral complex, and then we've stained it a color and added in an artificial smell. That, that's not a food. It may, it may have the nutrient levels that you're looking for, but there's no food in it. 
it's waste. Right. It's a nuts. It's nutshells, the seed shells, and maize husks, and all these things to create fiber. Well, actually, that blew my mind. And at that point, we sought veterinary assistance. And we're very lucky to have a veterinary oversight anyway. And again, the, the reaction was the same. How how can this be true? What what? Why are the foods that are available made from waste? And you know, how can we? How can we improve on that? Well, and I guess in the wild, the tortoise, you know, they're going to be eating lots of cellulose heavy, fiber heavy, you know, grasses and scrubs and stuff and whatnot. But also they're going to be eating greenery as well. And they're eating, when they eat the plant, they're probably eating part of the root and, and the yeah, flesh so of the plant, not just the husk. You're exactly right. That You know, these Mediterranean, particularly testudo species are browsers. They're eating live and dried grasses, thickets, overhanging leaves, herbs and root vegetables, uh, flowers, buds, anything that's at their kind of level. Um, you know, there's a big geophagy thing there. They're tearing some plants up, roots and all. There's lots of soil that goes in the mouth. But their, their insoluble fibre is coming from plants. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I'll send you a link to a paper so you can share it with everybody. But I was, well, actually, it's not a paper, it's a, a PhD, where they were looking at fiber strand lengths in tortoises and how that played a role in gut culture in the um, beneficial, because tortoises are high in gut fermenters. So that it's not straight digestion, you know, we have a fermentation chamber as well. And what they found is where they were using finely milled fiber particles the culture numbers and species diversification of species was much lower mm. inside the hind gut than were in long strand insoluble fibers. And, you know, they, they ferment tortoises in the, in the hind gut. They, they've already stripped off of the plant in the stomach, all of the easy accessible nutrition. This is a second go at it. They're trying to take everything out of what they've eaten. Sugars mostly by this point, um, before they pass the waste matter, but it's here where your microbiome is living and the healthier your microbiome is and the more diversification of species you have in your microbiome, the healthier you are because that's the powerhouse of the body. We all know this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so fiber length really matters and type of fiber really matters or you're quite right we could just fill food up with cellulose strands at microscopic lengths and and it'd be fine but it's not so we we went back to the drawing board to try and find a diet that would be would fall within the earth pro remit and to do that we made an absolute point of no waste material Mm. no food byproducts no what they call middlings so Again, unusable parts from plants and um, no flowers, no additives, no colours, no scents. We had to do that or I, I simply wouldn't have it in the range. And what we found was, was a European grown mix of grasses and herbs. So there's a meadows grown for commercial farming that, w- that we had access to. And there is a minimum of... 52 different species of grass and herb in this mix and 
on average about 60 actually but we're 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 going to play air to the side of caution and tell people 56 grasses and herbs so this is an eu grown grass and herb mix all that occur in the eu freshly mown throughout the seasons because it's constantly replanted and dried in the normal way and and delivered to us as, as whole product and uh I thought that was really exciting. You know, if, if, if you've got access, let's, let, let's say you, you've chosen not to feed what is waste matter, tortoise food, and you're, you're, you're feeding your animals uh, forage and weeds from home, you've probably still only got access to a dozen different weeds at any one time. Right. Well, suddenly we've got 52. Um, and, and it's seasonal as well, so it will change through the batches because it's a seasonal mix. And that wasn't enough for me. So we ended up adding another nine or 10 different plants. So roses, um, nettles, plantain, um, dandelions, marigolds, all of these different plants we added into the mix, bee pollen, revitalized. Um, so we worked with a vet to work out a, a ratio of, of our vitamin powder that could go into this mix just so there's a base level of A, D, and E. And we concocted this recipe that really does look on paper like the wild diet. It's fresh, and, and, and it is fresh plants because what, what, what we do with it, we, we cold press it. So we're not gonna steam it. We're not gonna extrude it into a pellet. We cold press, so all the plant material gets mixed up and we cold press it into a block and then the blocks cut into tiles so you end up with a little square of compressed grass what looks like compressed grass and basically you you simply add water to it so 12 teaspoons of water for each tile and the whole thing will swell and re-green wow so it will, it's quite amazing it most of it goes back to being green again and you get this lovely meadow fresh smell and you know, in that mix, there is at least 52 grasses and herbs, plus um, eight or nine other plants like blackberry leaves and raspberry leaves and roses and all these other things. A background level of fat-soluble vitamins, B vitamins, calcium, um, an amino acid complex, and to produce something that is as close to nature as possible and really easy to feed. You take a tile put it in its dish, you rehydrate it, wait for it to rehydrate, feed it. And so we worked really, really hard on that, really, really hard and worked with the vets so much that we're really proud to say that we're being allowed to print on the packaging developed with vets. The That's vets and, and allowing us to use their name and registration number so people can check. You know, our work's been checked, checked, double-checked and approved. And um, not not in the way that it's a veterinary medicine, but it, you know it is a an all natural type food that we've developed alongside a, a zoo vet um, that we believe there's nothing else like it on the market at all. So when you pro when you process the grass, are are you chopping it at all, or is it like how long are the strands within the compressed tile? No, so it's whole grass by the time it arrives to us. Mm -hmm. That obviously goes into a hopper where it's mixed with the other ingredients to 
industry formulations. You know, there's ways that they can mix things. So you can put a teaspoon of something in and it will still mix <laughs> over everything. You're quite clever. But then as it comes through the press, you know, the, the material comes through big on a belt and then that's pressed down in a jig and then cut. So the machine will, will, uh, will compact it, cut it. And that's where you end. So the tiles are, I think, inch and a quarter by inch and a half by a quarter deep. You know, they, they are well compressed by the time they by the time they're packaged. Um, but that means your fiber strand length is inch and a quarter. Right. Not so a, a lot bigger than fiber. powder. Yeah. And we, we add nothing to it. No scents, no colors, no preservatives. No additives of any sort other than we've added some of our revitalized powder to it for background vitamins A, D3 and E. Other than that, it's, it's as it would be found outside. So really proud of that. And that will be called optimized 52. Obviously, and 52 goes back to the number of grasses that are in the mix. And when's that uh, launch supposed to be due for? That's September as well. Oh, that's September too. Okay, that's awesome. I almost want to buy a tortoise just to buy it. <laughs> it's, it's, you know when you, you look at something when it's all hydrated up and you think, I wouldn't mind eating that. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice salad. <laughs> you just want to try it. But each tile weighs um, as dry about 12 grams. Okay. But by the time you've rehydrated it, it, prov- it provides about, on average, 34 grams of whole food. Amazing. And then I guess there's a testing process there too with, you know, feeding it to tortoises. We we were very lucky to have access to a big group of tortoises from numerous testudo species. And and actually we, we, we kept very accurate feeding records and we saw which tortoises went to it on the first feed or the second or the third. And, and, you know, that's a really interesting point, Dylan, because as you do with cats and dogs, there should always be, particularly for tortoises, there should be a transition period from one food to another. Mm-hmm. So we, as part of the web page, when the food goes live, there will be a, a downloadable guide and a video which will show you how to tr- properly transition your tortoise from one food to another, uh, to, towards optimized 52 in a, in, a, in a staged way. And we found that 100% of the test base that we used over a period of time um, would be accepting the food by feed six. Okay, that's pretty good, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a massive amount of time, but they would go on to it. There's one final point I'll make on that. Very clearly on the packaging, we, are, we print clearly in bold, can make up to 70% of the total diet. Now you'll notice on products like Insectigold and Omnigold, we are passionate about variation. Okay, we think that Optimize 52 is the most natural whole food diet that you'll find for your tortoise. However, you can make that better by still growing your herbs at home and sourcing good salads, staying away from fruits um, and uh, adding in more variety. And we will show you how to do that with a recipe section as well. We'll give you creative ideas of how you can improve uh, more fully. So if anybody ever comes to me and says, are your foods complete foods? That's all I need to feed my animal. I always say no, mm-hmm. whether, yeah. whether in practice it's true or not. You know, the, there's benefits of feeding live insects. There's benefits of adding 
to some species and there's benefits of adding plant matter of, of other safe species as well. Do you ever think about that problem when it comes to snakes? Because with snakes, quite often we are feeding a mono diet. I mean, there's a few of us that are, you know, changing prey atoms and whatnot, but th- that's a hard space to add a supplement. And I don't, I'm not sure if Arcade has ever thought about tackling that market at all, just because the nature of the, the you know, feeding whole prey is definitely different than feeding a gecko or a, a, a tortoise. But that is a bad habit that people get stuck into is consistently feeding the same thing over and over and over again. Do you, do you ever think about that? I think about it and I do not have a solution. Okay, yeah, that's a tricky one. I've really, really thought about it. And at the moment, other than cycling rats through gerbils, through mice, through quail and chicks and using as much variety as you can, I think, you know, even even in my second book, all those years ago, I laid out a case for the nest raiding and making little nests of pinks instead of one big feeder source and just so we've got nutritional variation. Um with snakes, it's difficult. Yeah. But I mean, you have to imagine that most snakes that we keep in captivity are not like a specialized eater in the wild. It's not like they eat a single, there are examples of species that eat a single prey source or, you know, 80% of a single prey source, like slug eaters or something. But for the most part, these animals are eating a variation. So yeah, I think that's the only way to do it right now is just making sure that you're cycling through different items. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm not sure we will ever find a solution to that. Yeah. I have a question about the vitamin D. You talked about mixing, using the revitalized D3 into in, mixing into that tile. And I know that that's a relatively new product, I think. And, and so I thought maybe we could just finish off talking about oral supplementation of vitamin D because I, I thought, because I think you previously did not have a, a oral D3 supplement and it was relying on the UV. And then something had changed in the last couple of years where now it's sort of, you're recommending it a little bit more once in a while. So maybe you could just clear some of the confusion up and, and talk about that. Yeah, so my, none of the historic products, Earth Pro A, calcium, calcium, magnesium, none of the foods had D3 added at all. And I, I was really passionate about allowing your UV lamps to do that, and they will if you use them properly. But it beca- there, there was two, two, different, two points of difference for me that, that changed my mind. Firstly, the sheer weight of keepers that were coming to me saying, I've been buying this product, I've been buying that product, and I use yours for four feeds, and then I use X product for another. And I just knew that we were never going to change that. And again, when I put my spreadsheet together to look at the additive values of, of all the different brands I could find, and I found some that had two and three million units of D3 in the mix, um, you know, we have to remember that, that vitamin D3 in that format was the most plentiful rodenticide in the world. It was rat poison in a massive dose. It kills things. And so that led me on a pathway of discovery of what kind of levels of A, D3 and E that an animal would actually experience um, orally in the diet. I then... it. it I was then presented with a paper that showed me, proved actually, I'd been involved in the supply of the equipment for the study, that most of the insects in a trial that were provided with UV were making D3 in their bodies. Right. And so then I started looking at more and more papers. And actually, you know, if you read my printed works, you'll see you'll see that I laid out a case with a leopard gecko is not, 
primarily an insectivore. They will eat each other and they will eat nest fallen birds and eggs and and they, they are opportunistic omnivores that are highly insectivorous. Mm-hmm. Now, if they do eat the odd egg or they do eat the odd baby lizard or frog somewhere in the year, they are self-supplementing with A, D3 and E. And that applies to any species. Unless you've got a prime herbivore, um, because plants generally only produce D2, then they're not really going to encounter much in the way of D3 in the wild diet unless they happen along carrion and decide opportunistically that they're going to eat that. Mm -hmm. Now, it upsets some tortoise keepers, but there's plenty of records of Testudo munching down on a run-over rabbit. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they really will, even though they are massively herbivorous. Every now and again, they will opportunity will present them with something and they'll take they'll take that opportunity. So I kind of in one hand I had this need. People were buying product that I believed was much too strong. And on the other hand, I was starting to be presented a case which proved that many of the species that we keep that are insectivores or herbivores, or we've accepted as being insectivores or herbivores, actually probably weren't in totality, that they remain opportunistic. And anyway, even if they were insectivores, if they're eating insects that are outside and have been under the sun all day, or even at night and they've been out in the sun all day, have D3 in the body. And so I saw no reason at all why, why providing low levels of A, vitamin A, D3 and E into the diet in a measured way wasn't wild-like because it would replicate wild feeding. So we, I formulated, and this took years, Dylan, I mean, years of frustration and working with, I worked with three different vets on this one. Four, actually, four different vets on this one. Ping-ponging backwards and forwards, what should we what should we do? What was safe? What wasn't? What was right for the brand? What wasn't? What what was right for the animals? All of these different things until we come up with a a recipe that, that I was happy with. And that, that gave you all of the benefits of Earth Pro A. We added 8% magnesium into right, revitalized. I'm really passionate on magnesium. And we put A, D3 and E in at, at quite low levels. And we print on there suitable for use with modern D3, with modern UVB systems. You know, if you're if you haven't got UVB, then don't buy revitalized. It's not right for you. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, if you're, you're using you're, if you're using variety feeding, you've got good heating and lighting, and you'll follow the program that we've got on our website, which is Earth Pro A on feed one, two, and three. Earth Pro Calcium Magnesium on feed four. Then we go back to Earth Pro A on five, six, and seven. Then revitalized on feed eight. And we carry that on in a ever looping cycle. You'll never overdose, but you mm-hmm. will be replicating those likely opportunistic feedings that, that you might get in the wild. Well, yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, and the magic of those fat soluble vitamins is they get stored. So it's, I, mean, I guess that is also the danger of the getting into a, an overdose situation. Danger. Because they are stored in the body, but from in a wild setting, you know, they take the opportunity to eat a mouse that they found dead on the floor, and that could give them enough vitamin D for a good stretch of time. Not to mention what they're getting from the sun. But so, so 
just to be clear, the revitalized D3 is not a daily supplement. It's something that you want to use once a week or so, as a or once every eight days or however eight feeds. Every eighth, in the, if you follow the program, it's every eighth feed, right. not every eighth day. We should have rest days for adult animals, mm-hmm. so it's every eighth feed. If you if you are not sure about your UV lighting or you don't use UV lighting, but you still want to use natural type um, powders then you can use, you can actually use revitalized at every other feed um, quite safely. The, the, the levels are much lower than you'd find in, in most powders and they need to be because as you quite rightly say, they're fat soluble. Yeah. So eventually that storage is going to continue to build and build and build. And yeah, I know that hyper vitaminosis D3 is actually kind of a sneaky little, it's sort of an insidious issue that it can easily happen if you're constantly dumping oral D3 into the into the mix, which is nice about the UV lighting is because the body takes care of all that. But like you said, replicating some of that oral ingestion is probably beneficial. And, and an over-provision of vitamin A is not only quite dangerous, but it interferes with a D3 cycle as well. Mm, so right. If you have massive quantities of vitamin A preformed, then it, it mucks around with the function of the D3 cycle. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot today. We've given a lot of people uh, a lot to think about as well as probably some exciting products for the fall that they can be looking into. Is there anything that we didn't say today that you wanted to to mention before we wrap up? I don't think so. I just wish everybody a fantastic 22 into 23. Hopefully, I'll be welcome to come back next year. And Absolutely. And hopefully, something more exciting to show you in, in, the, in the meantime. I just, please, everybody, carry on doing what you're doing. Get into naturalism, understand it, tell your friends, take good pictures, share them with us. We've got a fantastic hobby. We just really need to enjoy it and protect it from unnecessary attack. Exactly. Very well said. And as always, John, I love chatting with you. I know the listeners will enjoy this as well. So it's a pleasure every year. We'll definitely do it again next summer. And thank you so much for being with me today. The absolute pleasure. All right, that is the end of that episode. John, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you. You make everything so exciting and the passion that you have for the projects that you're working on makes it just mind-blowing to listen to. So thank you so much. Again, obviously, we'll do a fifth one next summer, which I'm already looking forward to. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help support it, the easiest thing you can do is just share it. Share it on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, however you want to share it. Please do that. It really does help bring new ears and eyes to the show. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. As I said in the intro, we are going to be decking out this entire podcast studio with Custom Reptile Habitats enclosures, which we will be doing some point in the fall. Of course, there'll be videos on YouTube, so make sure you're following me there if you want to see that. Make sure you go to animalsathomenetwork.com for more information on this podcast or any other podcast on the network. Like I said, I am taking a short podcasting break through the fall here. There may be some actual YouTube videos peppered in during that break, but the podcast will be taking a short break for about a month. But there are other podcasts on this network that will still be going guns blazing and you'll be able to absorb reptile-related podcast content on the Animals at Home Network. So I don't think you'll be starving for content. And also, if you are interested in... Actually, I think that's it. <laughs> I don't know where I was going to go with that. I was Sometimes my brain just runs on autopilot. So anyway, I think that is the end of this episode. Again, we're taking a short break. I will see you afterwards. Enjoy the rest of your summer and what's left of summer and then into the fall. And I will catch you guys in the next episode.